And now we're going to hear from Sarah the Scripture that is to be reflected upon today in our sermon from Acts chapter 3. Sarah. Our Scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive some, something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw that he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're looking at the book of Acts, and we see that this book is a book filled with the power of Jesus. Jesus promised his disciples something startling. He said this to him, to them before he was killed. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will they do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus promised that his people, filled with the same Spirit of God that filled him, would do works of power and miraculous healing just like he did. And here, 
That's exactly what happens, and it blows people away. And finally, it signifies something. It is a sign. It is a sign of something profound. And so let us look here at the miracle and then the sermon that explains it, or the sign and what it signifies. Firstly, it is a sign. This healing is an extraordinary event, but it is done by ordinary people whose only claim to fame was that they were eyewitnesses to the life and the miracles of Jesus, and then witnesses to His death and resurrection. That is all that they are, ordinary people. But this healing feels extraordinary, and so it should. And I want to take a moment now for those of us who doubt that miracles can happen and look at the text. Look at the narrative. I'm sorry you don't have your bulletins. We call this the Lemark effect. Lemark is on vacation, therefore you have no bulletins. If you did, you could read the Scripture and you could see the narrative and see that it has all the earmarks of factual history, not myth. Peter and John are going up to the temple, which is a very ordinary thing for people to do who are Jewish at that time. They're going up at the time of prayer, which is when people congregate, probably to meet other Christians because the faith is spreading quickly as more and more people relate and realize that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The narrator, Luke, tells us even where it happened. This is called the beautiful gate. That is what that gate was nicknamed because of the beautiful Corinthian bronze that was um, furnishing or ordaining it. It's actually the Nicador Gate in Jerusalem. There they meet someone who has a disability. That person cannot walk, apparently from birth. They have been marginalized all of their lives. This person is reduced to begging for survival. They ask for money. And the text says Peter stared at him, stared so fixedly that he locked his eyes on this man and said, look at us. So the man, literally it says, took notice and locked eyes with Peter. And then Peter says something extraordinary, no incantation, no preamble. He simply says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the man rises and he walks for the first time. His disabled legs and ankles strengthen and he is restored to full ambulatory mobility. He leaps around for joy, fulfilling a prophecy that predicted just this happening over 700 years earlier when Isaiah wrote about 740 before Christ. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy as waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Men and women, there is no other word for this than it is an actual miracle. A miracle predicted centuries before, a miracle that looks just like the kind of miracles Jesus performed while he lived on the earth. But it's not a mere miracle. It was never meant to be. Miracles are God's invasion of the natural laws that govern our universe and the world. They are extremely rare and they are extremely purposeful. Peter did not heal everyone who came to him. He could not heal all the time. Neither, by the way, if you look in the Gospels, could Jesus. He was given the power by God to heal here at this moment for a reason. And my guess, 
best guess at the reason is the response it created. God wanted this miracle to happen here in a very public setting, at a very public moment to help spread the word about His Son, Jesus. So let's look for a moment at the response, because you see even in the response something that gives us a sense of the actuality of this miracle. People here are filled with wonder and amazement, and later it says they were utterly astounded. That word literally means to be in utter wonder and astonishment, almost speechless. So I ask you, does that sound like the gullible response of a superstitious pre-modern people, or does that sound like just the response you and I would have if we were witness to a miracle? I remember I was in Costa Rica actually a couple decades ago now, I'm old, and we were doing an outreach to a rural community, and we were telling them about Jesus, and afterwards we invited anyone to come up who wanted to have more information or maybe wanted to become a Christian. A 14-year-old boy came up. He came up, but he started speaking in sign language because he was mute. And after he had understood and committed himself because he could hear to following Jesus, after he had given his life, he suddenly started speaking. Everyone was around him was astonished. A crowd quickly gathered. The Canadians there on our team were astounded and, to be quite honest, skeptical. They didn't believe it. So they began to ask everyone there, and everyone there confirmed that as far as they knew, this boy, this neighborhood boy, well-known by everyone, had been mute since birth. They still didn't believe it. They demanded to meet a medical professional who knew this child's file from the local hospital. Several hours later, they found a nurse who did know his file, knew his family, and could corroborate medically that he had been mute for as long as she knew, which was over a decade. It was a miracle. They came back very late at night, very shaken, white, pale as a ghost, because they'd seen something they never saw before, and it had astounded them. They're just like you and I. We're skeptical, are we not? We would be astonished if something like this happened, would we not? Isn't our natural reaction just like the reaction this story gives us? Yes. This miracle by Jesus through the Spirit, by the agency of Peter, is meant to be an extraordinary sign. John the Apostle made it very clear in his gospel that Jesus' miracles are signs of his identity, of who he is. And this miracle fits just that purpose. It's a sign. Three things I want to show you that I think it points to. Firstly, it is a sign of Jesus' power. Jesus, men and women, is God's beloved and only Son. He is God, the Son. He is God come in human form, fully God as well as fully human. And though fully human, with the power of God's Spirit in him, Jesus had the power to reverse the effects of the fall of the world into curse. If you don't know the language I'm speaking, that's technical theological verbiage for what happened at the dawn of humanity. This man here is disabled. He wants the ability that healthy human hands, he wants the ability to walk. He sees his disability as something broken that he would like 
freedom from, and the biblical text agrees with his self-assessment. Death, disease, disability are all products of brokenness in our creation. Theologically speaking, they are the brokenness or curse brought about by the rebellion and autonomous sin of our forebears, Adam and Eve. This is what Genesis 3 describes as the original sin wrought into humanity and into our Adam and Eve decided to ignore God's instruction, chart their own independent path, and the ruin it wrought upon the world is called the curse. It is the stripping of ability into disability. It is the stripping of life to death and disease. It is the stripping of, stripping of holiness and corrupting of it into sinfulness, selfishness, and corruption. These are the effects of the, of the fall of Adam and Eve, which we call the curse. And Jesus reverses the curse. He is re-enabling the disabled. He is taking sadness and sorrow and making it flee away. Jesus and Jesus alone, as God the Son come in human form, has that power. It is his power that has come upon Peter, the power of God the Son. Now, in our culture, as cynical and suspicious as we are of power, we don't like anything that resonates with power. But we need to see the redemption of power in the person of Jesus, because this power is not like the uses of power we see prevalent in our culture. Power in our culture is the ability to control others for personal gain, but this power is the antithesis of that. It is the power unleashed for the unleashing of grace. Our second point, this is not just a sign of power, it's a sign of a particular kind of power, the power that unleashes grace. You see, this power we see unleashed here does not control the disabled man or rob him of agency. It does the opposite. It gives him back ability. It frees him from his disability. It restores agency and dignity to this man. He no longer needs to be reduced to begging to eke out a living. He no longer needs to suffer the derision and pity and laughter and cruelty of people who pass him by. This is grace, and this is what grace does and what it's meant to do in all of us, to free us from the curse and to restore us to the full dignity of our humanity by giving back the ability that's taken away. And finally, it's a sign of Jesus' reign. This miracle after Jesus has ascended is so like the miracles that Jesus did. It It just has his footprints, as it were, all over it. The simplicity, no incantations. The authority, rise and walk. These things, the totality of the healing, these things speak exactly of the way Jesus healed when he was alive, except he's not here to do it. Or is he? here, there, and here to do it. This this sign is meant to point to something, to point to the fact that Jesus, risen and ascended and seated at God's right hand, a place of authority, of power, is still here reigning through His Spirit and through His people. It is not like any other reign, for it is a reign of love and grace. And this reign of love and grace is given expression through his people, his church, who are called to heal and love and show compassion and proclaim his grace to this world. 
We are the physical embodiment and expression of the reign of Christ. This healing is a shout to the world that Jesus is still here. His presence and His grace are still alive. So this miracle of healing really happened, and it is a sign of power, of grace, and of reign of Jesus. It answers three questions. Whose power is unleashed? The power of Jesus. What kind of power is it? It's the power of grace to unleash freedom and ability into people disabled by the curse. When is that power unleashed? When Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, sends His Spirit and His reign begins. Who, what, and when? Now, many of us are tempted to ask the question, so why? How does this apply to my life? And Peter, in his sermon, gives us three implications of significance for us to wrestle with. And in this sermon, Peter says we need to reject something, we need to realize something, and we need to repent to someone. Reject, realize, and repent. Firstly, he says in verse 11, while the disabled man clung to Peter and John and all the people utterly astounded ran together, Peter saw it and addressed the people. And he said, verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Peter's rejecting something. And what is that? What's he rejecting? He's rejecting something that we naturally tend to be tempted to do. And that is to ascribe power for the healing to the person whom God used as the agent of his own healing. Christians through the centuries have been tempted to put on a pedestal anyone whom God uses to perform notable or even miraculous things. We tend to give humans the glory for what should be given to God alone. By whose name is this person healed? Does he say in the name of Peter, the apostle, you are healed? No. He says by the name of Jesus. Now to us that's nice, the name of Jesus. You know, names are good. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out what to name our kids. But to a Jewish person in this context, listening to Peter, it feels vastly different. Because a Jewish person listening to Peter would know immediately that in the Old Testament, the name, particularly the name of God, means something far more potent. In Exodus 19, we get a hint of what this means. God says, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. A Jewish person would know that verse and have it memorized. God's name, his reputation is meant to go through all the earth. Equally memorized is Exodus 33:19, where God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The name of God is the essence of God publicly acknowledged from these verses. It is the essence of God publicly acknowledged. The name of God means the public reputation of the essential goodness and glory and beauty and holiness of God. But it means more than that. Other verses tell us it also means, not just the essence, 
but the very presence of God. 1 Kings 5, verse 5, I intend to build my house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David, saying, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, will build a house for my name. Same book, 8th chapter, 1 Kings 8. Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, that my presence might be there. The name of God is the manifest presence of God and the very essence of God publicly expressed that we may experience it. This is what the name of God means. It's the public reputation. It's the fame. It's the holy essence. It's the very presence. So now with those lenses in our eyes, let us look and read this again. In the name, Lashem, of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. In the name of the God who is Jesus, present among you, rise and walk. Men and women, every healing ever done by every, any human who calls himself a Christian is actually done by the power of Jesus, at the prerogative of Jesus, for the purposes of Jesus, that Lashem, the name of Jesus, might be glorified. We are never called to give glory to humans for the power to heal. It is a gift. No human has an inherent power to heal people, even those with the gift of healing. People given the gift will see more people healed than people who do not. People with the gift of evangelism will see more people become Christians than those who do not have the gift. But the power does not lie in the person. The power lies in the giver of the gift. So men and women, do not put on a pedestal people in your world, in your Christian world, in your church, who have specific gifts. Never put on a pedestal your preacher, your healer, your evangelist. Put on a pedestal and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the healer, who's the preacher. Second temptation, and it's the temptation of overreaction to the first temptation, and that is being afraid of miracles. This is particular to the tribe that calls himself Presbyterian, although others have it as well. Some of us, so wary of putting too much credit to humans, deny the power of Jesus to heal today. But the book of Acts, which starts the beginning of the last days which we are still in, says that the power of Jesus is still present on earth to do signs of his identity. Pray for miracles and signs. Welcome them and give God the glory for them. That's the first thing. Repent of giving glory to anyone but Jesus. Secondly, something to realize. After Peter rejects that it's their power or their piety that has caused this healing, he says what has. And look at how he centers something. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And is his name, by faith in his name, there it is, 
has made this man strong whom you see and know and that faith is through and and faith through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all do you hear the focus it's all on Jesus and his work particularly on the cross and it raises a question which is the greater miracle what would you most like to see someone healed physically in front of you from from disability to ability, or to see someone healed spiritually and come to a new life in Christ. One is moving from disability to ability. The other one is moving from death to life. Jesus himself asked this question when a man was lowered on a bed through the roof to where he was staying. And he said, which is easier, to forgive his sins or to say to this man, rise up and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise and walk. Which is the greater miracle? Peter makes this point. The whole point of this physical healing is to focus on the healer who can heal us at an even deeper level. Jesus, he's saying, can free us from the deepest slavery, the slavery of our hearts to the things that we allow to control us, our fears, our pleasures, our passions, our dark desires, our selfish ambitions, our traumas. Every human being I have ever met, wherever they are in their spiritual journey of faith, admits that every human being they have ever met has selfishness and darkness inside of them. It's the open secret we all admit. The gospel calls that open secret sin. We all have it. We are all sinful. We are all selfish. And we say nice things to diminish this wrong side of us, like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. But men and women, the wrong, the, the wrong inside of us is darker than that little idiom. It's the wrong that makes us daydream of cruel things, dark things that we would not want to admit to other people. It's the wrong that animates in our world racism, oppression, assaults and abuse, lust, greed, pride. It's the wrong we're glad nobody can see. But actually, somebody does. See, God does. He sees it all. He doesn't have those thoughts because he hates those thoughts, but he sees those thoughts when we have them ourselves. He hates sin. He hates my sin. He hates yours. He must if he's good. He hates them more than we do because he's more good than we are. He hates them infinitely. That's why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Sin alienates us from others, from ourselves, but most importantly from God. And let's be honest, our sin creates in us a kind of servitude. We become captured by things. We allow things to shape us, respectable things like our career, reputation, relationships. They begin to take our schedule from us and form it. 
We have, it seems, the desire to give homage to something. When it's your reputation that you serve, as it was for me for many years, it changes how you react to criticism. It changed how I reacted to failure. It changed how I reacted to being mocked. It drove me to be successful. The gospel says this kind of slavery is a slavery to something dark, to demonic powers in our world. Ephesians 2 says we followed the desires of our heart, and at the same time, it says we were ruled by the prince of the power of the air. Men and women, sin is no joke. It alienates from God. It invokes His righteous anger. It enslaves our hearts and makes us less than we know we can and should be. It will send us to an eternity without God. The wages of sin is death. In so many ways, it is death. Think about an eternity with God, wrapped in your own sin, knowing that a God of love and joy and hope and peace offered you a way out, and you didn't take it. He offered you healing from this slavery-inducing sin. You would spend an eternity gnashing your teeth and wondering why. Sin is the ultimate disability. It disables you from relating to God as your father, for he hates it and will only enter into a fatherly relationship with you when that sin is paid for and removed. And that's why Jesus came. That's the healing Jesus offers all of us, to take away this ultimate disability, to remove this deepest of slaveries. Which is harder, to remove the disability of a man unable to walk or a woman unable to know God? Which is more disabling, a woman who cannot speak or a man who cannot speak with God for eternity? someone unable to break free from their sin, enter into eternal joy, which is the greater disability? That's why Peter says what he says, you killed the author of life, life eternal, life with God. Don't try and excuse yourself from the guilt of being at odds with God. Don't try to pretend you don't want autonomy from God. Don't try to pretend you've escaped the guilt of sin, none of us had. The first step to freedom, men and women, is to own your own slavery and cry out for deliverance from us, from it. And Peter says, you raised him from the dead, of which we are witnesses. In rising from the dead, Jesus proved to be God the Son and proved that he's the ultimate healer for the sin that ultimately disables us. Finally, Jesus came to bring an escape, an exodus from the sin that can, that can kill us. Jesus is freeing people from an ultimate slavery and ultimate consequences. Physical disability and physical slavery pale in comparison to the slavery of sin and its effects. And those of you who claim to be more mature Christians, I have a quick study for you to do. Here it is. Study when all the miracles happen in the history of the people of Israel. If you study the time period in which almost all the miracles occurred, you will find something startling. They occurred in two small periods of time. Almost all the miracles of the Old Testament happened in about a 40-year period. Guess what 40-year period that is? That is the period called the Exodus, when Israel fled from physical slavery to Egypt toward freedom in 
the land of Palestine. Almost every single miracle is in there, that tiny 40-year period. Guess when almost all the miracles of the New Testament happen? In a five-year period, maybe 10-year period, the three-year period of the life, the public ministry of Jesus, and a few years after that, the early part of the book of Acts, almost all the miracles are in about a 50-year period out of a time frame spanning thousands of years. Why? Because those two periods are the two exoduses that the Bible recounts. Jesus brings the final exodus from sin, death, and slavery. The miracles are signs of exodus that Lashem, the name, God himself is bringing his freedom, his grace through his human mediators, Moses, and then the final Moses, Jesus himself. Which healing do you want to see? Grace Toronto, which healing do you want to see? I submit to you, we see the greater healing in our midst regularly, and we miss the power of Jesus here because people are coming to faith regularly from death to life, the final, full, and most profound exodus. Rejoice. And to all of us, these miracles, they're just about Jesus. The Spirit of God working these miracles of God want them to point to the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus sent His Son so that we may know who God is and worship Him through the mediation of the Son. The Spirit continues to do miracles that we may point to the greatness of the Son. Let's make our lives all about Jesus. And finally, a third application. Reject, realize, and repent. Repent, he says here, says turn back. Turn back. Why? Because if you do it, your sins will be blotted out. You will get forgiveness for your sins because Jesus died for them and paid the price. You will get freedom. Times of refreshing may come upon you. It's so refreshing to be freed from slavery. Thank you. One day, this will topple. <laughs> when I'm in staff meetings, I sometimes get my staff, like, they, they do the Dan McDonald imitation. That's this. This poor music stand has been abused by me far too long. I'm sorry. Forgiveness of your sins. Freedom. Times of refreshing may come upon you. And joy. Jesus is coming back. It says here that Jesus will come back, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring has come. If you repent of your sin and turn back to Jesus, he will give you times of refreshing, freedom from your sin, its debt, freedom from its power. And when he comes back, you will be his. He will be coming back for you so that you may spend an eternity with Him freed from sin, freed from evil, freed to infinite joy. Promise. What an invitation. Grace Toronto, friends of Grace Toronto, people investigating the faith, repent. Turn back to Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, do it for the first time. 
Allow Jesus to come into your life, forgive your sins, and give you power over the things that might enslave you. If you're a Christian, and yet you've allowed some of those things to capture your heart again, turn back. It's time to repent, to be refreshed, and to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In his name, amen. Our service uh, has gone a couple minutes long, and so I will reserve the Q&A to answering them privately. You may still text them in. I would be happy, uh, and you can do that. But right now, we're going to respond to the sermon as we've seen it. And we're going to go to a song of response, or should we do this first? What will you feel like? We're going to go to a song of response. Please rise.